0: Um, yes, yeah, so uh, like Marshall said, uh, my name is Luke Rakestraw. It's great to be with you all this evening. Um, and like he said, I don't normally preach here. This is my first time um, actually preaching here, and depending on how this goes, it might be my last. Um, but I, I work for a campus ministry called Campus Outreach at the University of Kentucky, and I am committed to preaching here every Sunday if UK continues to pull out wins like they did last night. Just for the good of the team, uh, the good of the UK, I'm, I'm willing to do it. So uh, Marshall has been leading this church, through a series this fall, through the Book of Acts. And so since we moved to this new building in August, we've been going through the Book of Acts and and we've seen some pretty incredible things. Um, But I'm gonna take a break from that tonight. Uh, One, because Marshall asked me to take a break from it, and that's the main reason I'm taking a break. But the the second reason I'm taking a break is um, something I've realized is the fall in Kentucky especially is such a beautiful season. Um, I love the fall, um, but the fall can be just crazy. It can be exhausting. There's so many events coming up. There's so many new things happening. It's so exciting, um, but it's really easy to fall for us to get weary and to get busy and to get exhausted. And so what I wanted tonight mostly to be, be an encouragement from Isaiah 55 about God's heart for us. And so if you have your, uh, your order of worship, it'll be, it'll be on page 8, Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David." For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. And I pray tonight that you will do exactly what you promised in this passage, that the word that you have sent forth from your mouth will accomplish that which you purposed it, Lord. And you will bring your compassion your care for your people, Lord. And we would leave here encouraged and convinced of your grace for us. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen and so like marshall said like i said i am a college minister um, and so most of my time uh, is working with college students and believe it or not when you work with college students you get a lot of interesting questions asked especially about the faith and so i get a lot of questions all the time Uh, most of those questions are the normal questions that me and you ask questions like what is god's will for my life questions like how do i know if i'm really saved or can this sin that i did in my past really be forgiven by the grace of god those are the normal, normal questions that you kind of get on a day-to-day basis. There's also the crazy questions that just come out of nowhere that really make you think and, real, and make you think, I, I don't really know how much I thought I did. Um, in fact, two weeks ago, I had this crazy question asked. ask. Um, I don't know what the context was, but someone just happened to ask me, hey, Luke, is getting cremated a sin? I have never really thought about that. I never really thought about being cremated. Um, and I just had to say, let's pray about it, which is... Uh, <laughs> which is ministry talk for I just have no idea uh, so I get normal questions I get crazy questions um, but the, the most common question I get year after year is does God care um, that's the question I, I receive the most from students and I found that that's not just the most common question I get from students but it's, it's the most common question inside and outside the church Um, For the most part, we don't really question God's existence, but we do wonder if his existence matters for our everyday life. Does he really care about me, my family, my future, the ordinary things that I go to on on Monday through Friday? Um, Then we turn on the news and we see some of the tragedies that are going on in the world, especially this week, where bombs are being sent through the mail, shootings are happening just an hour down the road in Louisville, and, and the tragedy that happened with the synagogue in Pittsburgh. We see that tragedies on the news, and we see the brokenness in our own lives and families, and we really do start to wonder, does God care? And all these circumstances and all of our feelings are just confirming what we already fear in our hearts, that God may not care. Because if He did, it just seems like things would would be different. Things would look different. And so the people that heard these words in Isaiah are just like us today. They're asking the same question in Isaiah 55 that we are asking tonight: Does God really care? Because Isaiah is a prophet that was sent by God in the Old Testament to speak to his people, and the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are chapter after chapter of God choosing something, or of God's people choosing something else besides God. They were constantly Isaiah's question to them over and over again: Is will you trust in the Lord? And Isaiah's people. Turn to other nations for their for their trust. So God's people, Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, is this constant state of sin and rebellion against God. It's some of the hardest passages in the Bible to read and to hear. But there's this really interesting and beautiful turn that happens in Isaiah 40 through 66, which is where we're at tonight in 55. In Isaiah 40 through 66, there's a big turn, and God shows them that He will actually care for His people. So in Isaiah 39, God's people realize they're going to be taken into exile because of their sin. They're going to be taken out of the promised land that God has given them and because of their sin they're going to be taken into the hands of Babylon one of the most ruthless nations in the world. But God says in Isaiah 40 that he will care for his people not necessarily through preventing them from exile or taking them out of exile but from giving giving them himself in exile. That is the care of God to his people is that he gives us himself. And so as the voices in our life scream this coming week that God doesn't care, Isaiah 55 is gonna be the megaphone for us from God that he does care because he gives us himself. He gives us his his very heart. And so three things from the passage about God's heart that I want you all to see tonight to to answer the question, does God care? I want us to see the contents of God's heart, the cost of God's heart, and then the confidence of God's heart. And I'll go through those piece by piece. So the first, I want you all to see the contents of God's heart. To understand if someone cares in this life, it's really important to, to see what, they, what their heart is like. The heart is really the most important thing to look at when you're looking at if someone cares. Now we're not talking about God's heart like a human heart. God is not like us and his heart is not like our heart. Our hearts can be fickle, they can be emotional, they can be full of overwhelming passions and desires that change on a day-to-day basis, and our hearts are so dependent on things outside of our control. God's heart is not like that, and so when I'm talking about God's heart, I'm talking about what is central to God. So what is God's heart? Isaiah chapter chapter 55, verse 1 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. In this first verse, there's a broad picture of God's heart for His people, and it's, and it's painted under this metaphor of a feast. It's the same feast that Justin just sang about. There's this, this great feast that there's a there's a big invitation. You see it in the first two verse first the first verse the first two words. Come, everyone. There's a feast that is happening and God's heart is inviting and open to everyone, for everyone to come. This is important for us to see because God's heart is not closed off. It's very open. It's not based on income or race or background or personality or gender. It says, come everyone. And this feast is described with three images. Three images that are drinks. He says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. So he's saying this feast of God's heart is where salvation is found. When you you go drink water, you're really thirsty. There's nothing that quenches thirst like water. And the same with God. He goes on to say that this this feast will include wine. God's heart is where our greatest satisfaction is found. Wine is used for enjoyment, for celebration, for joy. And then he he concludes verse 1 describing God's heart as milk. God's heart is where our sufficiency is found. This milk is where our strength, where you grow. So notice in this this first verse alone, God's heart is not described in terms of scraps. He's not giving out the basic necessities here. This is a great feast where not only you get the bare necessities, but you get the richest of splendor. However, metaphors and imagery that you see in this passage, they only do so much. Metaphors and images only describe what something is like. They can't really describe who someone is. And so again, that begs the question, what is God's heart? Okay, it's kind of like water, it's kind of like milk, it's kind of like wine, it's kind of like this great feast that we can all kind of picture in our minds. But what is God's heart like? Isaiah goes more specifically in verse 3. Incline your heart. Incline incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And this is the key verse. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Where God's heart is found and where our fullness is found is in this word covenant. If If I could describe God's heart in one word, it would be covenant. Now, we don't use that word very often today. And so we need to understand what this word means to have its full impact on our lives. The only place where this word still comes up outside the Bible today is in marriage. Marriage is still considered uh, a covenant in our, in our culture, in our society. And so we're coming out of wedding season. So the last three or four months, I'm sure you all have either participated in a wedding, been to a wedding, heard Marshall preach at a wedding. I feel like you preached at about 15 of them over the last three months. Yeah. Um, so we're just coming out of a wedding season. And believe it or not, the most important part of a wedding It's not the first kiss, even though that's extremely important, especially for the bride and the groom. It's not the pictures that are taken before and after where all the memories are kind of made. It's not the food at the reception, even though that's very important, especially for the guests. Um, It's not even when the bride walks down the aisle, even though that's one of the most exciting parts of a wedding. The most important part of a wedding is not any of these things. The most important part of a wedding is when a bride and groom come together to exchange their vows. Because in those vows, what they're saying is, we covenant together. And you all know these vows. They're very, they're very common. But in those vows, they commit themselves to each other despite their circumstances. So this is where you get the for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. When the bride and groom come together and say, all that I have is now yours. All that is yours is now mine. And they commit themselves to each other despite what any circumstances might bring. And so the greatest gift of marriage is this covenant. That's why it's called the covenant of marriage, where the bride and groom give themselves to each other. So what is God saying here? What is the point of the everlasting covenant in verse 3? He is saying here that that the heart of God is a covenant. God has committed himself to us despite the circumstances that we might go through. And this is the theme throughout the entire Bible, and if you start looking for it, it really comes out. God starts with going to Abraham, and he says, I will will make you into a people, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. He then goes to Moses and says the same thing, I will be your God, and you will be my people. He then goes to David and says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And this refrain continues out throughout the whole Old Testament and New Testament, and even to us today, that God has covenanted with us to be our God and for us to be his people. For better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. How do we know that God cares? Because he has said, I will make with you, I will establish with you a covenant to be our God and for you to be his people. And so Isaiah wants God's people to see more than anything. They're going into exile because of their sin. But he still wants them to see that God has not given up on his people, he has not given up on his covenant. God has not given up on you or this world and its suffering and sin. And so, no matter where you're at this evening, if you are in covenant with God, God has, has covenanted with you. And so, which brings up the, the natural question how do you get in covenant with God? If this is the claim of the Bible, that God is covenant with his people, how do you get into that covenant? And so you've seen the contents of God's heart. That that is a covenant. Let's look at the cost of God's heart. How do you get into the covenant? Well, it actually comes at a cost. Look at verse 1. He says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And you see in the second half of that, that verse, he says, come buy twice. So come to this feast, buy, come to this feast, buy. But then he has this really weird ending, without money and without price. And so how do you buy something without money and without price? We know from a very early age that nothing in life is free and the better that something is, the more expensive it is. Um, so why not something as great as a covenant with God? Something as great as the feast that he's describing, that God has, has committed himself to us, that should come at a at great price. It shouldn't really be free. Well, it is free, but it also isn't free, which is the tension in in this text. The heart of God, His covenant with you, is absolutely free for you all tonight, but it's at a great cost of God. Look at verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon that word compassion literally means suffer with. And so what God is saying in this text is that God will suffer with his people. And so what does he mean by that? How does God suffer with his people? Like I said earlier, Isaiah 1-39 paints this horrific story of how God's people continue to trust in other nations over God, the same way today that we trust in other things besides God. And they, they continue to turn away from him. But Isaiah 40, like I said, starts to paint this new, beautiful picture. In Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 53, there starts to be these claims there's going to be a person that comes. And this work of a person is called a servant. And that servant is actually going to come to set God's people free. Not through his power, but through his suffering. Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 53 all talk about a suffering servant is going to come. And so how is God going to suffer with his people? How is he going to have compassion on his people? Through Jesus, the suffering servant. That's why in the gospels, when Jesus shows up on the scene, he not only says, I'm the one that's promised, but I'm the one that's promised to suffer. He comes again and again and tells his people, I've come on your behalf to suffer. And so God doesn't just covenant with us, he covenants with us by suffering, by sending his son as a suffering servant to take our sin so we can be in covenant with God. Isaiah 53 puts it like this, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have all turned everyone to his own way. He's describing God's people in Isaiah 1-39, we've all turned away from God. And then he says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on his suffering servant, his son, the iniquity that we all deserve. See, although forgiveness is free for us, it is the most costly thing in the world because the person forgiving has to always absorb the cost on himself. This is the way forgiveness works. It's free for, free for some, costly for the other. For, for example, after the UK game, oh, not, most people I'm sure in here watch the UK game celebrated accordingly. Um, It was a a huge win. And what most UK students do after the UK games, especially after the big wins, is they go to State Street. And I didn't see any videos about this or anything on Twitter about this last night. But I'm about positive that some people were out on State Street going crazy, as they should. It was a big win. But so I'm I'm sure last night they destroyed property, uh, destroyed the streets with trash, graffiti. If you go over there right now, there's probably remains of that everywhere. So the city of Lexington, when all that happens, doesn't just forget about what they're doing over there. They don't just say, well, uh, nothing we can do about that. No, the city of Lexington practices forgiveness every Saturday night, every Sunday, every weekend, when when all the students go party on State Street because they absorb the cost of all the mess on themselves. They pay for the streets to be cleaned every Sunday night. They pay for police officers over there to protect people on Saturday evening. What students do on State Street isn't free after a big win. Even the students get to enjoy the freeness of it. The students experience the freedom of forgiveness at a great cost to the city week upon week after week. See, forgiveness is always really costly. We, we tend to only think about the freeness of forgiveness and never think about the costliness of it. The person forgiving always has to absorb the cost of those that hurt them. That's why it's so hard to forgive people in your life. When someone hurts you, it's so costly to have to forgive them because you have to you have to absorb that hurt on yourself. But God does not merely forget about our sins. He does not merely just deny it or sweep it under the rug. He has not forgot about the sins from Isaiah 1-39. No, He forgives it abundantly, verse 7 says. And the way He forgives it abundantly is He takes the cost upon Himself. He suffers with us by taking the cost of our sin through the giving of His Son on the cross, which is what Jesus came to do in the, in the Gospels. And to really understand the heart of God tonight, to really understand if God cares, you have to see both. You have to see both the the freeness of forgiveness and the cost of forgiveness. And so where are you at right now? Do you see the cost of forgiveness? That it was the whole point of the cross? See, the cost of forgiveness helps you see the reality of sin. If you only see that forgiveness is free, you will never forsake your way, like it says in Isaiah 55.7. Because sin won't be that big a deal to you. It doesn't cost you that much. But you can't just see the cost of forgiveness. You have to also see the freeness of forgiveness. That you don't have to take the cost of sin on yourself tonight. You don't have to constantly live and beating yourself up for your sin. If you only see that it costs God deeply, you will never return to the Lord, which it also says in verse 7. You will stay away from the Lord because you think it costs Him so much you only see God as only critical of your sin, not compassionate toward it. Jesus is the way we receive the freedom of forgiveness through the cost of his life. It's both free for us and at a great cost for him. And that helps us rejoice at his gift, but also realize it came at a great cost. And so, like I said, the most common question I get on campus is, does God care? I do believe that's the question that we ask the most in our day-to-day lives is, does God really care? And, and really, when I, when I explain that to someone um, about the cost of forgiveness and, and what God has done for us, the most common response I get is, that just seems too good to be true. And that's kind of the, what, what's going on in this passage. Can you imagine what God's people were thinking when they heard this from Isaiah? They heard about this great feast. He says, we're going to have a banquet. <laughs> we, we can barely find food in exile. He says, we're going to experience the forgiveness of sins, yet we're going into exile because of our sin. He's saying we're in covenant with God, but this feels like we're actually being cut cut off from God. And for God's people, this all must have felt like a cruel joke. Like when we hear about the the grace of God, the goodness of God, and we turn on the news and we see so many bad things happening. It just feels like it's too good to be true. So how can we know it's true? My last and the most brief, let's look at the confidence of God's heart. What is our confidence? Why can we have confidence that the covenant of God that He's made with us is true and that the cost of God is true as well? How can we have confidence? Well, The reason you can have confidence is because the last half of this passage shows us that this is all happening for you, but it's not about you. You can know that God cares because this is happening for you, His covenant, His forgiveness, but it's not ultimately about you. Look at verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. He immediately goes to God. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seeds to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from, your mouth, from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. What is God saying there? He's saying that all this redemption is for you, but again, it hinges on me. I'm the one that's going to do it, and so our confidence is not in our ability, but in God's. See, the other nations around Israel that, that, that God's people had continued to turn to, Egypt, Mesopotamia, they had water sources. Egypt had the Nile River. Anytime they needed water, anytime they needed life, they would just go to the Nile. Mesopotamia had the Euphrates. Anytime they needed water, they would just go down to the river and get it. What did Israel have? What did the land of Canaan have? No water source. They had God, and they had His rain. If the rain didn't come, they had no life. And guess what? The rains came every week. Again and again, God provided for His people through the rain. It, it, It was for them, but it wasn't about them. They couldn't make the skies rain but God gave them the rain because it is about him. See, in Isaiah 55, God is at the center, and that's how you know he cares. Our struggles are not at the center. Our sin habits are not at the center. The news and social media is not at the center. Our political parties are not even at the center of Isaiah 55. God, not our circumstances, accounts for the times in which we live. And guess what? Like Marshall said in the beginning, he's bringing redemption to every part of it. That verse 12, all the, this instead of this, is a direct reference to the curse in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve ate from the, from the, in the garden, sinned against God, and sin entered the world and destroyed not only us, but all of creation. The reason life is so hard and we struggle to see God's care so much is because of the curse of sin. This sin did not just affect them, but it affected everything in us today. And God is saying through this passage in verse 12 that one day it will not be like that anymore. He's not just going to redeem us, but He's going to redeem all things. And this is the whole pattern of this chapter, this is the whole pattern of the Bible, and this is the whole pattern of human history. That Isaiah moves us from famine to feast, from death to life, from salvation, from sin to salvation, and from suffering to redemption. Instead of the thorn bushes that you see in the passage, there's going to be evergreen trees. Evergreen trees that leaves never fall off. Instead of sadness, like you see in this passage, there will be joy. Instead of hate and divisiveness that we see so much around us, there's going to be peace. He is reversing the curse of sin in Genesis 3 through the work of his son to the praise and glory of his great name. What Isaiah says is an everlasting sign that will never, ever be cut off. The reason there is so many, it shouldn't be like this in your life, when you look at something and say it shouldn't be like this, is because it shouldn't. And you need to know from Isaiah 55 that it wasn't meant to be like that, and one day it won't be like that. He's redeeming all things, including you, and he's put his name on it. It's dependent on his name. And it will not fail because God will not fail. God's heart, God's redemption... All of this is for you, but it's not about you. And that's why it's such good news. So does God care? I don't, I don't just get asked that question a lot. I actually ask that question a lot, unfortunately. Uh, the last time I really remember asking this question was a couple months ago when I was just over there. Um, over there is where Grace Baptist, this church that partners with us and lets us use this building. Um, they do the homeless ministry on, on Monday afternoons and they feed homeless every Monday. And so I was in there, I was seeing all the homeless people, I was hearing their stories and what they had been through, and it it was hard, and it just made me think when I was listening to them, does God really care? Because this is just a small sample of what's going on in Lexington. I can't imagine what's going on throughout the world. But what happened after that is is Grace served them meal after meal. The volunteers came and they served them as much as they wanted. And, I, and one of the guys that was sitting there um, said this, I don't remember the last time I was this fool. And that's the point of Isaiah 55. It's not only showing you the redemption of your soul through the suffering of Jesus. It's showing you the redemption of all things through the reign of Jesus. Where we will all come together one day just like this and say, I don't remember the time I was this fool. And there's no better application for this summer than this sermon than what we're about to do in a second with communion. To come to this table is to come to Jesus. Not just for what he's done for you in the past, but to look toward the future and the great feast at the end of it all where we'll all say, I don't remember the time, time I was this full because of the covenant God has made with me through the cost of his son. And so this is why we can come to God tonight because he came for us. This is why we can be full because he emptied himself for us through to the blood of his cross. This is why we are all free, because it cost him everything. And this is why we can have hope in this life, even though it doesn't seem like it, because it's about him, not us. And so uh, come and enjoy the great redemption of God. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for the feast that you have given us, Lord. I, I pray... That you would help us see it for what it is, Lord, that we'd see the cost of your sacrifice, Lord, and that we'd freely come and enjoy you. In your name I pray. Amen.